Welcome to Flowcast. I am your host, Jeremiah Washington. We're sharing stories about people changing lives in hopeful ways for the life of the world. A ministry of Dominican Sisters of Springfield, Illinois, recorded live at Sacred Heart Convent. Hey friends, I'm excited to introduce you to one of my favorite Dominican Sisters of Springfield. I'm with Sister Bernadette Marie McGuire. Five years ago, I started working for the Sisters. I was a teenager. I had no idea what to expect. I'm not Catholic. I never met a sister before. I started washing dishes in the kitchen and serving food to about 100 sisters at a place called Sacred Heart Convent. I set a goal to learn all of the sisters' names and to get to know something about each one. It wasn't a matter of learning just the names of the 100 sisters who lived at the convent. There were about another 100 of them who lived, as the sisters say, on mission. These sisters pop in and out of the convent They call it the mother house, all the time. There were always more names to learn. I'd seen Sister Bernadette Marie around. She came home for community meetings and retreat, but didn't really get to know her until she moved home about a year after I started working with the sisters. Anybody who knows Sister Bernie knows she has a good sense of humor. Because of this, she was a favorite of the students at the sisters' high schools where she was the librarian. The pinnacle of her stand-up career was at her last library gig at Rosary High School in Aurora, Illinois, the place from which she retired, in air quotes, retired to Sacred Heart Convent. So here we go. Enjoy my conversation with Sister Bernadette Marie McGuire. Today is February 24th. How's your day going today, Sister Bernie? Very well, except this is usually my nap time. Oh, really? (laughs) You take a nap every day or? Oh, yeah. (laughs) When I come home from work in the library, I usually try to read a book and fall asleep. (laughs) One thing we know about you, uh, everyone who knows you, at least, and probably some people who's never met you, know that you're a jokester. Uh, Yes, I don't do practical jokes. I tell (laughs) jokes. I don't like practical jokes. How come you don't like practical jokes? I think they're kind of mean. Kind of mean. People have enough problems in the world without my creating more of them. No, I never thought of it like that. Tell us about, you know, when you streamed some jokes. Well, when I was at Rosary High School in Aurora, I uh, was always telling the girls jokes in the library. And so when they had a talent show, they asked me if I would be in the talent show and tell some jokes. So I did. And so every year after that, I would have a little space in the talent show. And then when I came here to Sacred Heart Convent, they wanted me to stream some jokes to to the girls back at Rosary. So I did that. That's how I got into that. I didn't like that as much as standing in front of an audience telling a joke because then I could look at myself and I didn't like it (laughs) as much as I did just doing it. Is it more of you begin a reaction from the audience? Yeah. Yeah, reactions. Is, it's, yeah. it's harder to do things that not Well, they people. were a friendly audience, so it wasn't too bad. I could tease them a lot. If you don't mind, could you tell us one of your favorite jokes to tell? Well, my signature joke was, ask me if I'm an orange. Are you an orange? No. (laughs) (laughs) And they thought that was really funny. And I used to tell that joke at freshman orientation. I would say to the, the freshmen in the auditorium, ask me if I'm an orange. And they would ask me if I was an orange. And I'd say no. And then they'd all laugh. 
And I said, the reason I told that joke is one of the things you have to learn in high school is don't do every stupid thing that people tell you to do. <laughs> yeah, they had a meaning, meaningful joke. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you uh, ever learned anything from your students over the years of teaching? Oh, uh, no. I mean, not, uh, you know, a big classroom thing, but just that teenagers are really kind of interesting and nice and not like, well, of course, I'm not their parents, so they weren't mean. Yeah. And so I enjoyed the, the kids a lot. Yeah. High school. I taught mostly high school. I taught first grade for 10 years. When I was in high school, they had a, an exercise in their uh, theology book to ask uh, survey questions to older people. One of the questions was always, what's the worst thing you ever did for money? And I always said, first grade, <laughs> teach first grade. <laughs> teach first grade. <laughs> it was a hard job. Back when I taught first grade, it wasn't like now where all the kids were in preschool and watching Sesame Street. We had to teach them how to count to 10, what the colors were. I mean, we were starting from scratch and you would have a classroom that had some students that had kindergarten and knew something and other ones who hadn't and didn't know a thing and so you had to start way down at the basics and we had like 50 children in a classroom oh wow yeah that's a big class Mm -hmm. so it was a lot harder than it is now i think but now they have to contend with all the technology and everything yeah i'm glad i'm not doing that (laughs) how did it get better you know with teaching high school what was like the pros of that well first of all you don't have to teach them how to count to 10 or their ABCs. And as most of my high school, I did teach some classes, but most of my high school I was in the library and the rosary students especially would say, oh, you're our favorites teacher. And I would say, yes, I don't give grades. Mm -hmm. That's a big plus. Yeah. You don't have, and a librarian doesn't have to check papers very often anyway. And so I could be a lot more relaxed with the students and you didn't have to control a big classroom full of students all the time. You just had the people in the library. I could react more one-on-one with girls. Rosary was an all-girls school, but I also taught at Marion Catholic and Route High School and Sacred Heart. They were co-ed. Teaching there where there's mostly just girls and then you teach boys and girls, what's the difference? I know they say girls are more advanced than than guys are. I wouldn't go that far. Let's say girls, I found the Rosary girls to be, uh, I'm not sure they were all nice girls. You never know what kids are like when they're not in school, but they knew how to act nice. And girls are more likely to be polite, you know. I just really enjoyed them. I enjoyed all my students in teaching, even the boys that I taught. I taught at Rosary for 23 years. Wow, that's older than I am. Hmm? I'm, not even, I'm not even 23 years of age. <laughs> Since before you were born. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. You mentioned being a librarian earlier. You told me that you knew when you were younger that you were going to be, that you wanted to be a librarian. Yes. Uh Why is that? 
I found out later in life that I was, when I went to U of I for my master's degree, that I was uh, addicted to library books because one time we went early to help clean up the house we were going to live in and the library was closed and I didn't have a book. <laughs> I felt deprived. <laughs> anyway, my mother started taking us to the library. She loved to read and so we went from the time we were small. I don't think I've ever been without a library book except that one time since I was two years old and I would always go to the library and I loved the lady who was our librarian. Her name was Mrs. Hun. So I knew that was what I really liked to do. What is it that draws you to books so much? I love to read, and I love to read all kinds of books, mostly historical mysteries. That's interesting. Or mystery stories set in other countries, because both of those kinds, you can learn something else besides the mystery, like what it was like to live then or in that country, what's different about it. So what do you prefer, being a librarian or teacher? Which one do you prefer to do? Oh, librarian. I had a feeling. Sometimes, even after I became a librarian, I would teach a class, like one class. And the last time that happened to me, afterwards, I said, this wasn't as much fun as I remember it being. So you taught mostly in Springfield. I taught 13 years at Route High School in, in Jacksonville. And was librarian there also. And I taught two years at Our Savior's grade school in Jacksonville. I taught six years in St. Edwards in Chicago and four years in Odell. Is that Odell, Illinois? Yeah, Odell, Illinois. Then I went to Marion Catholic for two years in Chicago Heights. And then I went to Sacred Heart in Springfield. And I was there when it became Sacred Heart Griffin. And then I went to Rosary for 23 years. Visit SpringfieldOP.org. That's SpringfieldOP, like orderofpreachers.org. And click on the Listen, See, Respond button to take a three-day virtual retreat. Sister Bernie told me she grew up in Springfield and her family lived here for a long time. One brother lives in Decatur and she has another brother in Arizona and a sister in Idaho, but she still has one sister living in Springfield. Take a listen. Well, I have one more sister. She lives right here at the Sacred Heart Convent, Sister Rosemary. Yeah, yeah, um, I, I know her. Uh-huh. So how does it feel to have relatives that are in the community? Rosemary's the only one that I've lived with, and it's wonderful. One of the things that happens all the time, though, is I'll tell a story that happened when we were young, or she'll tell a story that happened when we were young, and we don't agree on what happened, <laughs> we say. And we're only two years apart, and we, she always says, we had different childhoods. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, you two are like the complete opposite, too. I remember when uh, I found out you two were sisters. I didn't even, I couldn't even believe it. Uh-huh. Hey, family. Yeah, it's a great comfort. So what made you become a sister? God. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> what is it that, that God... Um... <laughs> well, I was a senior in high school. I was sitting in the study hall, and they announced over the PA that Father so-and-so, who was the vocation director for the diocese, was in the office if anyone wanted to talk to him. And I said to myself, darn it, I think I'm supposed to be a nun. <laughs> And so I went down and talked to him, you know, about what I should do. And Rosemary, who was two years younger than me, she was a sophomore. She said when she heard the announcement, she thought, what kind of fool is going to get up and go down there now? Oh, wow. <laughs> Complete opposites, I'm telling you. I don't... Uh, think I had really seriously considered what I was going to do before that, but all of a sudden I knew what I was going to do. It's called inspiration. Inspiration. <laughs> you think you inspired her to become one? Well, when she wanted to become a sister two years later, she didn't want to follow me because, you know, little sisters don't always, don't like to always be following their sisters. And so she was looking at some other communities, but finally she decided to come to our community. And so she made an appointment to speak to the mother general. And I happened to be the one who was in charge of answering the door that day. And so the mother general had said to me, I'm expecting someone to come. So they'll be here and I'll be in such and such a place. So when the doorbell rang, I opened the door and there was Rosemary. <laughs> What'd you say? It was a big surprise. <laughs> So I took her back to the Mother General, and so it took her a while to figure it out. How long have you been a sister? Uh, 60, Sorry. well, 63 years. 63 years? Since I entered. That's, that's a big dedication. Yeah, I think I'll stay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want you to tell a joke that you told me about the fish. <laughs> it's so funny. That That's my favorite joke I've ever heard you say. <laughs> And I've, I've been saying it uh, ever since you told me that. Okay. <laughs> what did the fish say when he ran into a, a wall? What did he say? Damn. <laughs> <laughs> that joke gets me every time. I can never, I can never get tired of that joke. I, I don't know if it's because I use the word <laughs> damn. No, it's, it's just how you say it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. That's great. I heard you were into art. I brought something for you. Oh, you did? Yes. Oh. <laughs> did you make this? No, not at all. It was given to me. In, oh, nice. Uh, I think you can use it better. These than look like real sprinkles that you could actually eat. No, I didn't. <laughs> but I don't think I'll try it because no. they probably have glue all over them. Yeah. It's a beautiful ice cream cone with a purple cone and a whipped cream top with sprinkles all over it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I see how decorated the library is oh, all the time. Okay. So when it was given to me and we had the podcast today, I said, this would be perfect for Sister Bernie. <laughs> perfect. Well, most of my art, if it got to the Antiques Roadshow, would be called folk art. Folk art? Yeah. yeah. Uh, my mother was always doing crafty things like crocheting and making rag rugs and making doilies and all things like that. 
I think she would have been a good artist if she had a chance to uh, have had the education for it. And so I just kind of picked it up. I wasn't particularly arty in high school. Yeah, so you liked art a lot? Yes, I do like art. What's some of the art that you made? Well, I made a lot of weavings, and I have some for different seasons of the year like Lent and Christmas and Easter, and different different ones. A lot of my art is copies of famous art, like I have a copy of Gauguin's picture of the three puppies, purple puppies on the table, and Picasso. I was making this one of Picasso. It's a woman on sitting on a ladder holding a little bird. And I said to someone, you know, this picture bothers me a little bit because the the ladder is not leaning on anything. And the person said, the woman has her head coming out of her shoulder. She has two eyes on the same side of her face, and you're worried about the ladder. (laughs) (laughs) I like Picasso. I like Rembrandt. Those are probably my two favorite artists. How come those are your two favorite artists? Well, Picasso is just so innovative. When I went to Notre Dame for one summer, they have an art museum there. Yeah. So I went to their art museum, and there's a Picasso a picture of a woman lying in front of a mirror, and it's like has like 10 strokes, and the picture is there. You know, it's like he just went... And there it was. And uh, I like Rembrandt because he could paint things that were realistic. He painted a lot of Jewish people and Jesus, too. And he lived right next door to the Jewish ghetto part of Amsterdam. And so he knew what they looked like. He used them as models. My favorite one is the picture of Simeon in the temple holding the baby Jesus. And the Jesus looks like a baby. And a lot of people who drew babies back in the, that day didn't look like babies. <laughs> that was the picture he was drawing when or painting when he died. It was unfinished. So someone else painted a person in the background and everybody said, well, they should have left it alone. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Yeah. One of my favorite, this is kind of a joke, one of my favorite stories about Picasso is somebody was interviewing him and they said, do you use real models? You know what Picasso's pictures look like? I haven't seen any Picasso pictures Uh since like high school. Well, they have like two eyes on the same side of their face and stuff like that. So this person said, do you use real models? And Picasso said, where would I find them? (laughs) You never seem to miss with the jokes. Have you ever told like a a joke to someone or even, you know, in front of a crowd and you got like a bad response? No, I don't think so. I had a feeling. Except that one chicken joke I told you last week. Some people don't like that one too much. Did you tell me? Why did the chicken cross the road? How come? To get to the fool's house. F-O-O-L-S. Yeah, I didn't like that joke. (laughs) I didn't get it. The fool's house. Knock, knock. Who's there? The chicken. Oh, I'm the fool. (laughs) Yeah, I guess the fools don't like the joke. (laughs) (laughs) That's not their favorite one, but I like it. (laughs) Wow, the fact that I didn't even... you, You did tell me that. And I, I, I don't get it till you just, now. You just erased it from your mind. <laughs> yeah. You're a real jokester. <laughs> wow. 
you have any stories about just being in Springfield, like family stories or anything? We were just a pretty ordinary family. Sister Rosemary is two years younger than I am. And then our next sister is eight eight years younger than me. And then the next one is a boy, Danny. And he's four years younger than that. And Johnny was four years younger than that. So I'm 17 years older than my youngest brother. He was only a year old when I left home. Wow, yeah. That's a wide stretch apart. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So I think he was about eight years old when he finally figured out who I really was. But I think most of my nieces and nephews were about eight years old when they made connections like that. They'd say to you, your brother wants to speak to you, meaning their father. When you say, like, ordinary family, what do you mean? Mother, father, we didn't do all that much, you know. Back then, we, we didn't even have a car till I was a senior in high school. We rode the bus, and in high school, I hung out with my friends a lot, all girls. Sacred Heart at that time was an all-girls school. Oh, really? And then when Sacred Heart, when Griffin High School decided to close down, we took in the boys and it became Sacred Heart Griffin. I was there at that time as a teacher. So you went from all the girls and then out of nowhere, here well, comes the, you know, co-ed. It worked out. But at the time, the boys were not happy campers. <laughs> How come? You know, well, because their school closed. You know, and they had to come to Sacred Heart. You know, they weren't, it took them a couple of years to get acclimated, you know, how people would feel. As the history goes with your family, you know any of it? Well, my mother's from Kansas and she came out to Springfield during the Depression. Her father, my grandfather, was a coal miner. And so he uh, came back, it closed down, I guess, in Kansas. And so he came to Springfield. There were a lot of coal mines here at the time. And I I remember when we were growing up, my mother would always be listening to the radio, which mines were open, so she'd know which one, you know, if he was working that day and what was going on, if there were accidents or anything. My father's family has been here since the time of Abraham Lincoln. My grand, I guess it would be my great, great, great grandfather, maybe, who was working on the state capitol. Oh, I guess it was the new one. I'm not sure which one it was construction when Abraham Lincoln was here giving a speech and they said he fell off and was killed. He was up on a scaffold or something. That's one of those family stories. You don't know how true it is. And then I had an Uncle Johnny, who would be my great uncle, and he worked for the Journal Register. He was a typesetter. And at that time, Vachel Lindsay was a poet. Did you ever hear of him? No. He has a house downtown you could go see if you, if we ever get out of coronavirus. But anyway, he said they used to always just cuss up and down whenever he would send in one of his poems because they had such outlandish words in them. Uh-huh. <laughs> they would have to typeset it. Yeah. So he, I think he went to great to grade school was like in third grade. I think he was in third grade with Vachel Lindsay. And so our families, the McGuire family, has been here since the potato. Famine, I think. The story is that the ancestor from Ireland stowed away on a ship with his little sister Rose and came to America through New Orleans. That was during the potato famine, which was in the 1850s. 
And then gradually he came up the river to Springfield. So McGuire's had been here a long time. That's interesting history there. Yeah. Rosemary and I took a trip to Ireland in 2004. Uh, My mother paid for it. She said, Daddy, my father, who was dead by that time, always wanted to go to Ireland and he never got there. And so she sent the two of us. Rosemary is the one who does all the ancestry stuff. And so she's saying, so-and-so lived here. (laughs) I think our family was from Limerick. Well, that's interesting that your ancestors had to stow away on the ship. How would you compare that to today's immigration? I presume since he was supposed to only have been 10 years old and his little sister Rose was even younger, that they were orphans by that time because so many people in Ireland died during the potato famine. And if that happened today, they would have been unattended children coming in and they would have ended up in one of the cages in the detention centers. According to the history, Rose disappeared in New Orleans, so we have no idea what happened to Rose. He somehow managed to come up the river. Of course, 10-year-old children at that time were considered, you know, almost adults, I think, and could get all kinds of work in farms and whatever. And the immigration laws weren't all that strict. I don't think New Orleans was as strict as Ellis Island. I don't even know if they had Ellis Island then. No, I didn't think so. And they were just coming in. You wonder what would have happened to your family if they had lived now. Would they be in one of those detention camps? camps. Yeah, it's pretty bad. It's, it's just crazy how, like you mentioned, 10-year-olds back then, they they did do a lot of work. You can work for yeah. companies on doing dangerous work that as a 22-year-old man myself wouldn't even do Yeah, at the ages of 10. My mother's family had a tradition that my great-great-great-grandfather on her side was married to an Indian, and he died in the Civil War, and they had two small children. One was her great 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 grandfather and he was only 10 and he was given out to a farmer to be a farm worker at that age and the other one I think was apprentices to a watchmaker or somebody yeah a 10 year old was considered an, a valuable asset did you ever hear of the orphan trains yes They would send children out of the slums of New York on the trains, and the train would stop at a station, and anybody there could agree to take the child. And we had one sister in our community who came on an orphan train, Sister Augustine. Luckily, she was taken by a nice family who raised her and, you know, was very good to her. But a lot of the children were taken by farmers and other kind of workers and became maids or, you know, farm workers and were not treated well at all. They wanted the children because they needed workers and you wouldn't have to pay them. You'd have to house them and feed them. But yeah, things are different now. I couldn't imagine. I just couldn't imagine it. Yeah. Growing up, I I have a 10-year-old brother, and uh, yeah, he couldn't do none of that stuff. Well, he would. (laughs) He would have had to, though. He would have had to, yeah, to survive. That was the only method, you know. 
You said potato famine. I didn't know anything about that. Oh, there was some kind of a blight on the potatoes, and that was one of the main, well, one of the very main crops of Ireland, and people ate a lot of potatoes. And when the blight got into all the potatoes and the people had nothing to eat, you know, they were just desperate. And so that was when a lot of the Irish came to the United States just to get out and get somewhere where they could live. They just were desperate. Ireland has very few assets. I mean, like they don't have big mining. The ground isn't really fit for big farms like we have here. Potatoes will grow about anywhere, I guess. But anyway, it's rocky. And when we went to Ireland, our bus driver told us that I think it was in the 70s, government officials got together at a big meeting and they said, we have no assets. We're not going any place. The only thing we have is children. And so they decided at that time they would pay for education through college. We will educate our children. And at that time in, in the when we went before the recession in 2009, Ireland was sitting high in the world. And it was mainly because of technology and all these kids had gone to school and gotten degrees in computer science and stuff like that. They were really doing well because they had invested in their children. I never knew that. Yeah. You think that's something the world should try to do more today? Oh, sure. Invest in the children. They're the future. Ireland also has, when you get to be retirement age, I don't know if they consider it 65, senior citizens don't have to pay for transportation or I don't think utilities, but the taxes are very high. If you want to have stuff like that, you have to pay taxes. And we don't like to pay taxes. <laughs> but we like to have lots of, of perks. That's true. <laughs> That's true. Well, my mother, I told you my mother's story was that we were partly Indian, Cherokee Indian. Well, my sister-in-law gave us uh, Ancestry kit for Christmas a couple years ago. None of us in our family that have had it, which is my brother and his three daughters and grandchildren and Rosemary and me, have a drop of England. Indian blood in it in us at all. (laughs) So she didn't, she wasn't for sure when she told you that. (laughs) Well, she was for sure, but somehow we didn't inherit any of it. (laughs) I got to do one of those one day just to know because I'm not sure. Well, Rosemary and my brother, Danny, each have less than 1% toga. What's that? One of my nieces, which is an African tribe. So I don't know how that happened. (laughs) Toga. Anything's possible. (laughs) You know, anything. Uh, last night on Finding Your Roots, which is on PBS on Tuesday, they had Roseanne Cash, you know, Johnny Cash, yeah. his daughter, and uh, she found out that she has a lot of African American blood. She knew she had some, but not as much as she had. Yeah. And they traced back her whole story in, into slavery. I was just about to bring that up. That's probably, yeah. you know, where that came from. She was really surprised. It was. That's a very interesting show. Rosemary is so into ancestry. I just got my, you know, profile back. I'm 63% Irish, and the rest of me is uh, Northern Scotland. Well, Scotland, Northern, Northwestern Europe, so it's all Celtish. But she's kept up with it and has a family tree and all this stuff. Yeah, she's worked on it. She's worked on it, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, tell the story about how did 
you cure the hiccups for the students that had them that day? After about five hiccups, I call them up to the desk and say, you know, this is a library. We have to be real quiet in here. We can't have all that noise. So, you know, I'll just have to give you a detention. And I'd pull out the detention pad and start writing the kid's name. And she'd say, but that's not fair. I can't help myself. And then she would go on and on about how I was being unfair. And by the time she finished, the hiccups were gone. I'm always surprised when I hear my own voice on a tape or anything. doesn't sound at all like I think I sound. And my one sister, Pat, in Idaho, I sound just like her. It's very interesting. She's the one who's eight years younger than I am. And uh, she even writes like I do. One time, Beth Murphy said to me, why did you send yourself this package? I said, I didn't. She said, the handwriting is yours. (laughs) It was for my sister, Pat. Do you think your comedy is a ministry? Yes, I like to make people laugh, and that makes them happy. And so, yeah, that's one of my big ministries. My other big ministry is in the library. We belong to the library system, and we probably have the best theological, religious collection in the whole system. And so I'd say about a third of the books that I send out to other libraries are, you know, religious books. And so I consider that part of our preaching ministry. That's great. I didn't even know. I appreciate having you on the podcast. You know, you joined. I told you about it, and you were, you was really excited, and I'm, I'm glad we did it. <laughs> because uh, this went well. Yeah, This went really well. Thank you. After we said goodbye, Sister Bernie ran upstairs to chapel for evening prayer. She didn't get her nap that afternoon, but she gave me, and I hope you too, something important. A look at just how simple joys in life are a way of communicating God's love. Till next time, stay blessed. Thank you for listening to Flowcast. Join us next week to hear more stories about people changing lives in hopeful ways for the life of the world.